The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I am the host for this podcast. Today's episode is episode number 315. We are in our seventh year of podcasting weekly, and we sincerely hope that we are giving you some good information. Just a reminder to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star rating so that when people are suffering from addiction and they Google how to find out more information, our podcast will come up. Also, please check out our YouTube channel, subscribe, give our videos a thumbs up, and ring the bell so you'll get notified whenever there are new videos. Just a reminder also that we're always looking for stories to tell, so reach out to us, the Addiction Podcast at yahoo.com. Today's, inter- today's an interview, and it's an interview with a gentleman named Bill or William Bodner. William Bodner is a 31-year veteran of the Drug Enforcement Administration. He assumed the role of special agent in charge of the DEA, Los Angeles Field Division in June 2019. As the special agent in charge, Mr. Bodner is responsible for overseeing the daily operations of 14 offices located in Nevada, Hawaii, Guam, Saipan, and the seven Southern California counties, which make up the greater Los Angeles area. Mr. Bodner has leveraged his extensive career in Los Angeles to develop and improve upon partnerships with state, local, and other federal agencies. His vision is to conduct very impactful investigations on the most significant drug trafficking organizations posing a threat to our region, keeping in mind the goal of improving the quality of life for those in their communities. Mr. Bodner sees the mission of the DEA as keeping communities safe and healthy while reducing drug-related violent crime. Without further intro, let's talk to William or Bill Bodner. So, Bill Bodner, DEA, thank you for being willing to be on the podcast today. Thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. Would you just give us a little bit of your background? Um, not not so much your background. I mean, when we talk to former addicts, I like to know their whole childhood. You mm-hmm. don't have to go that far back, but just like, you know, your education, your career path, what led you to where you are now? Right. So I, uh, I grew up in New Jersey and went to school at the University of Delaware, went to college at the University of Delaware and graduated and I was interviewing for jobs. Uh, I majored in finance. And as I interviewed for jobs, I each time I finished an interview, I felt like there was kind of something missing. And I, I thought that there, there hopefully had to be something more than just a pursuit of the dollar, so to speak. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but I was hoping to do something that would have a, a little bit of a greater good for the community. And there was DEA. You know, it was a job where uh, you weren't behind a desk for eight hours a day. You were out in the field. Every day was different. You were talking to people and you were hopefully doing something that had a positive impact on society. So I applied and it's kind of a funny story I tell is I was immediately uh, not hired. Rejected? (laughs) No thanks. Rejected (laughs) is a great word. Rejected is a great word. And the reason why is, you know, I had just graduated college. I didn't have any real life experience. I didn't really have any specialized skills that DEA was looking for at that time. And I had a real good recruiter that worked for DEA. And I asked her, what, what are you looking for then? What can I do? And they said accounting. They were looking for accountants. Money laundering was a huge issue, late 80s, early 90s. 
I went back to school, uh, graduate school for accounting, and then applied again and was uh, hired in New Jersey, the Newark office, and, and immediately transferred to the furthest possible place from there, which was Los Angeles, California. And more or less, I've been in LA now for, uh, let's see, 31 years this month. But I did a stint of uh, about three years, 2006 to 2009, at our special operations division in uh, Virginia, right outside of D.C. So that's really that's really my career. I feel like I'm pretty well in tune with drug issues, at least here in Los Angeles, just from being here so long and kind of having my finger on the pulse. I'm, yeah, I'm sure you are. Um, just out of curiosity, and again, I know that there's things that you can't talk about, but when you were working in Virginia, were you more focused on like federal issues in terms of drugs? So it was the, the, the job there, special operations, it's coordinating uh, national investigations so they have the most impact. Okay. For instance, real quick, two of the cartels that we deal with the most today, Sinaloa Cartel and Jalisco New Generation Cartel, Mexican drug trafficking organizations, uh, the ones sending most of the fentanyl and methamphetamine that we see up here in the United States. We would coordinate cases in different cities uh, where there was connections and then try to take all those cases down at the same time, arrest all the traffickers around the country at the same time. The premise being that that has a much greater impact against that organization when you take out their people in several different cities simultaneously. So that was a big part of what I did in that job. I, I can imagine that that would be the way to go. I know there's an analogy um, with animals, and I can't think of what it is, but just that instead of just going bit by bit, if you can do several at once, I would. I can imagine that that, yeah, would be a better way to go. Okay, so you then were in L.A. from 2009 till today, right? Yeah, uh, that's it. Yeah, I was here from 90, 92 to 2006 and then back in 2009, and I'm still here. Okay. Just out of curiosity, the three years that you weren't in L.A., when you came back, did you see big changes? In terms A little bit. You know, that, that's an interesting question. No one's really asked me that before. And the big thing I saw at that time was an increase in uh, the abuse of prescription drugs, oxycodone. That was really from 2006 to 2009 is really when we saw a great uptick in uh, oxy prescription opiate abuse, oxycodone, and what we call pill mills. Interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that's about the time too when the pill mills were big in Florida. I, I may not have my dates right, but as I recall, I think same thing. So then, okay. So how did, like, what's like the history of the the drug situation like you've got the pill mills then and then what did that morph into and how did we get to where we are today and what we're confronting today which i think is different it is different definitely connected though so so here's what's interesting i think it was uh the, what, what i say is the height of our prescription drug problem in this country with opiates uh it was either 2012 or 2013 i can't recall which specifically but there were 255 million opiate prescriptions written and I don't know what the adult population of the United States was then, but, you know, it, it'll give you an idea of how incredible that problem was. So people people finally recognized what was going on. And it was doctor associations, pharmacies, professional associations of pharmacists. It was the general public. It was law enforcement. Everybody got together and said, hey, we have to address this. Uh, prescriptions have come down, opiate prescriptions, every year since then, to the point where now they're probably hovering around 140, 135, 140 million. 
So what did that do? We had created a market for these uh, pharmaceutical pills. People have a perception that these pharmaceutical pills are safe. And as we, meaning the United States, everybody in this country, tightened up the, the controls on the supply, what did that do? That created an avenue where the drug cartels could step in and say, hey, Americans want this. We have the ability to make it. We're going to fill that void. And that's where we saw them step in and start making these uh, counterfeit or fake prescription pills, which is what's really dominating the landscape today and causing all the harm to our kids. You know, you say that and it makes total sense, but I don't know that the majority of the people in this country thought of that. Do you know what I mean? And yet it yeah. makes total sense. If you cut out the legal prescriptions, there's a demand there. The drug cartels go, we're going to fulfill that demand. Right. Right. Wow. Wow. When did, from your perspective, when did fentanyl come on the scene? Because we know that's a big deal now. Yeah. So there were, it was the way I describe it to people, it was a little bit of a boutique drug at first, meaning that it wasn't necessarily readily available all over. Now, this is, uh, this is let's say, 2010 through 2015 even. At that time, fentanyl that was here in this country was primarily coming directly from China. Uh, overnight mail, you know, parcel express coming from China. And then people in this country would get the fentanyl and perhaps press pills or uh, or mix it with other drugs or whatever, but it was a small, a bunch of small scale operations dealing directly with chemical suppliers or drug suppliers in China. And, uh, you know, I remember 2016, Prince, the musician, died of a fentanyl overdose, and he was really the first kind of significant um, celebrity that we lost to fentanyl. Sometimes the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 866-989-4499 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. And it was at that time, and I, I remember we were doing an investigation here in Los Angeles, and uh, it was on a Mexican drug trafficking organization. And through these intercepts that we got, we knew they were putting together a list of chemicals, or they were discussing a list of chemicals, and we didn't know what these chemicals would be used for. So we sent the list to our uh, laboratory people and they said, hey, whoever's getting these chemicals together, they're going to make fentanyl with them. Oh. That's what these chemicals make. And that was about 2016. And that's when we saw the explosion of fentanyl onto the scene. And what happened was, as I said earlier, Mexican drug cartels started getting the chemicals now to synthesize the drug from China, creating the drug in Mexico, pressing fake pills and sending them up to the United States to fill that void from the prescription drugs that people used to take. And that's really when we saw the explosion. And if you look at the numbers from 2016, uh, the social issues have worsened every year, deaths, overdoses, poisonings. Um, and, and that's really the cause of it is the mass production now of the drugs in Mexico. Wow. 
You know, I have to applaud you, Bill, for the work that you do. It's not pretty what you have to look at every day. When you were talking about, you know, intercepting communications about these various chemicals and then finding out, I got chills, you know, it's, it's like out of right out of a spy novel. Do you know? And I, anyway, I just want to take a moment to just applaud you for the work that you do because <laughs> you're looking at bad people and bad right. things. Do you know? Yeah. Anyway, I, I actually didn't know about Prince. I mean, I obviously knew he was dead. I think I knew it was a drug mm -hmm. overdose. I didn't realize that that was um, like, <clears throat> excuse me, like the first well-known fentanyl overdose. Okay. So today, that's what you're dealing with now, today. Right, right. Okay. I know you can't tell us what you do. Well, tell us anything you can tell us about how you're counteracting it. I mean, I, yeah. you know, I don't want you to, yeah, don't give away everything. <laughs> yeah. So, so no, for sure. I'll talk about our strategy and then I'll talk about um, the kind of the other reason why these, the, the, the main reason why the Mexican cartels are trafficking this drug is it's so profitable. And, and why is it so profitable when you compare it to heroin, right? which is the, the former opiate, it used to be the worst opiate, that is, let's call that an organic drug, just meaning that it, it grows, right? There's a plant that grows. The poppy plant grows. It has to be scored. It has to be scraped. Uh, it's very labor intensive. It requires the drug cartels to control specific areas of land in Mexico where the climate is conducive to growing that type of plant. And how many growing seasons are there? There's one growing season, right? With fentanyl, all that goes out the window. It's just a question of getting the chemicals and making the drugs. So really, the supply that they can create of heroin is limited, and it costs a lot to scale it up. The supply of fentanyl they can create, I would say, is unlimited or, or perhaps limited only by the chemicals they can get. And it's very cheap to scale. They can have a lab in a garage. They can have a lab in a warehouse. They could put it in a truck and move it to a different part of the country if they wanted to. That's the reason why we're seeing this explosion of fentanyl is the profitability and no more reliance on mother nature, I guess is a good way to put it. So here in Los Angeles, we have kind of a two prong strategy to address uh, fentanyl and methamphetamine too, which is an equally, almost equally as bad synthetic drug. LA is a transshipment center for drugs in the United States. And what I mean by that is drugs come across the border from Mexico, they come directly to LA and they're warehoused here. And then some of the drugs are of course distributed locally, but a lot of the drugs go to uh, the Northwest, the Midwest, the East, East Coast, the Northeast. They go all over the country from here because we have several airports. We have a maze of freeways. We have freight going out by trucking company and they can piggyback drug shipments on that freight. So it's just being such a big city with such connections to the rest of the United States and being close to the border, it's really, it fills that role as a transshipment center. So anytime there's a drug issue, we're gonna really, uh, it's gonna impact us here in Southern California tremendously. So the first part of our strategy is going after the wholesale dealers, the people working directly for the Sinaloa cartel and Jalisco New Generation cartel who are bringing these huge quantities of fentanyl into the United States and by huge quantities, uh, you know, more than 100,000 fentanyl pills at a time, sometimes as many as a million pills at a time we found in one location. And then also the powdered fentanyl, which is being mixed with a number of other drugs, and in some cases even mistaken for other drugs. Uh, it's important that we reduce the drug supply because our argument is when we reduce the drug supply, we reduce the drug harm. 
And we can point to past issues with prescription drugs to kind of verify that, that theory. When prescriptions went down, overdoses related to prescription drugs went down. So we're trying to do the same thing now with the illicit drug supply. The second part of our strategy is really related to also where, I guess the way I would put it is where the very specific harm is in the community. When people die of a drug poisoning, uh, we get involved and we try to trace those drugs back to the supplier. And when we are able to do that, we charge the supplier with a federal charge. It's drug distribution resulting in death. And it's a very significant federal charge, 20 years in federal prison. Wow. And uh, yeah, it's a long, it's a long, a long prison term. And sometimes people would say, especially in today's day and age, boy, that's a long time to incarcerate someone for drugs. And, and I remind people, drug for trafficking death? is not a victim. Yeah, the, drug yeah. trafficking is not a victimless crime. No. You know, when, when there's people dying, and, and here's, a, here's a great example of that. We, and these are real cases. We investigated, we investigated a case once where in one weekend, one drug dealer caused seven poisonings and three of those people died, wow. right? In one weekend. And what I tell people is if law enforcement doesn't intervene, what is the expectation of what's going to happen the next weekend? Yeah. Are we going to just say, oh, I, maybe they'll stop drug dealing? No, that doesn't happen. It's a crime agreed. And that cycle, unfortunately, continues until law enforcement intervenes. And, you know, the difference is, you know, when a drug dealer sells heroin to an addict and the addict overdoses, there is an argument that the addict overdosed. The addict took too much. But fentanyl's not like that. One little tiny bit of fentanyl, and I'm preaching to the choir, can kill somebody. Mm -hmm. So you're selling fentanyl. You're selling death. I mean, that's the bottom yeah. line. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com, or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or call us at 727 314 7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. And it's interesting because, hey, um, you know, when, when we talk about people that we've lost to heroin, we've always struggled as a society, uh, people with substance use disorder, getting them into treatment, getting them help, right? But, but in the past, it's been easier to identify the people in our community who were at risk to a death by drug poisoning, because we could look at the people suffering from substance use disorder and we could focus our efforts there. And now it's very, very different. And, and you kind of alluded to it, to it. The word you didn't say was deception. And I think deception is a key word because they're selling these lookalike fake pharmaceutical pills. They look identical to Xanax, Oxycodone, Percocet. And to be clear, they have no pharmaceutical ingredients in them. Fentanyl is the active ingredient, and then there's binders and fillers. But when they sell that to people, oftentimes they're advertised as the real prescription drugs. Wow. So people are being deceived, especially teenagers who are not necessarily real savvy in the drug market. Maybe they're experimenting with drugs, or maybe they have a little drug history and they're recreationally using them. And that's what puts them at such risk today. It's it's very different. Yep. Yep. We had um we've had a couple of gentlemen on. I think one I think one of whom lost a child, but another who just has gotten involved in this and he said we have to have a paradigm shift. This is no longer drug addiction. This is poisoning 
of these mm-hmm. children and these, you know, teens and young adults. And that's, that is a difference. Well, here's an analogy. And sometimes this resonates with people who, who aren't where you and I are at right now. Um, I say, hey, what would society's response be if there was a counterfeit cancer drug being sold on the streets and it was killing, you know, thousands of people a year? And that's really what's going on here. There's a counterfeit prescription drug being sold. And, um, you know, it's devastating us. Yep. Yep. And that's a great analogy. It's a great analogy. What words of wisdom for people listening, Bill? Um, what do we say to them? You know, because, you know, young kids are getting a lot of this fentanyl on social yep. media. Yep. Yep. A good point. Um, hey, the number one thing right now that all of us can do, and, and it literally will save lives today, is education and awareness. That's the number one thing. And I say that because of that element of deception that I just talked about. I think the first thing we have to do is kind of um, empower kids with the right information so that they know it's not a real prescription drug. And I think when they know what fentanyl is, what it will do to the body and where it is in the illicit drug supply chain, they can hopefully make better personal choices. That That's number one. Um, that That's just super important. And probably, probably there be, should be some kind of formal curriculum in schools. That's one thing I hear from parents yep. uh, regularly. And hey, we're getting there, right? We're getting yep. there. But, but just to give you... Uh, you know, I can I can say just three to four years ago, we would talk about bringing a program into schools. And sometimes the response we would get was, we don't want to do that because we don't want parents to think there's a drug issue in the school. And, I, you know, hey, now I think we're past that. I, well, I think we're there past There is that. a drug issue in the but school. There is. Hello? Exactly. Yep, oh. there is. You know, head out of sand, people. Anyway. Yeah. Well, once again, I'm going to say that I appreciate you. I appreciate what you do. I I think, um, yeah. I mean, you're you're fighting the good fight, Bill. You really are. Thank you. I appreciate that. Absolutely, and thank you for talking to us today. Because, you know, I'm going to push. We push our podcasts out via email, and I'm definitely going to recommend that people listen to this podcast if they have children, because as you say, they can just educate their children. You know, you think you want to try Xanax, just, it might not be Xanax. Chances are very high. It's going to be fentanyl and that results in death. Yep. That's the truth. And Hey, I used to, I used to just regularly tell parents, Hey, parents, you need to talk to your kids, educate your kids. But now what I've realized in the past six months or a year, Sometimes parents don't even know. So now I say educate yourselves, then educate your kids. Exactly. That's a very, very, very good point. Bill, thank you so much for talking to us today. I appreciate you. I appreciate all of the information. I think, yeah, if we can just get parents to just listen to this podcast, it's only 20 minutes, but that's okay because (laughs) it's all, it's all anything you ever wanted to know about fentanyl and it's not pretty. Right. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If um, you missed earlier on the podcast, I um, I talked about a family guide that they have, or a parent guide that you can get from the DEA to talk about some of these issues with your children and to get educated yourself. So I'm going to put it up now, and it will be at the end of the podcast. And if you're watching the podcast, you will be able to see it. 
Um, anyway, there is a parent guide. You can get it from the DEA and you need to get educated. You need to know about this. This is killing children. Okay. This is not turning them into drug addicts. This is just out and out killing. It's poisoning. So, um, sorry for being heavy with you, but that's the truth of it. I'm going to, we'll be back again next week. We have another interview. And um, if you need treatment, please, 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 please reach out. If you can't find a treatment center that works for you, reach out to us. We'll help you if we can. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com. Feel free to email us anytime. You have been listening to The Addiction Podcast, point of no return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.